0: Ever heard of Patience Gray? If you have, good for you. And if you haven't, you still most likely are affected by her passion and work every day, as this woman has defined our modern way of eating and cooking more than any other woman of her time. Patience gray, a life about food. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. We are talking with the author of a new book that is honoring a woman's dedication to food and her unwillingness to accept societal standards, luckily, as we are all better for it today. She was the Alice Waters of her time, helping to redefine our relationship to eating. Patience Gray A Life About Food. That's the title of a new book by Adam Federman, and he is our guest today. That's our topic, Patience Gray, A Life About Food. All that and more coming up in just a minute here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm your host, Helge Helberg, and this show is made possible by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee tea, chocolate, bananas and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at EqualExchange.coop that's EqualExchange.coop and by Utterly, Offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Udderly Making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, aderly.co. That's U T T E R L Y.co. back here to an organic conversation. We're talking with the author of a new book that is honoring a woman's dedication to food. She was the Alice Waters of her time, Patience Gray, and the book is titled Patience Gray, A Life About Food. The author is Adam Fetterman, and he's joining us today out of northern Vermont. And Adam is a reporting fellow with the Investigative Fund of the Nation Institute covering energy and the environment. He's joining us today out of Vermont. Adam, do we have you on the line?
1: Yes, thanks very much for having me.
0: Wonderful. And we are so excited to have you because this very show, and Organic Conversation, while we are now covering all kinds of green uh, lifestyle and sustainable living topics, uh, it really started around food and our relationship to food and organic agriculture and patience gray i must say i'm i'm one of those people uh, i was not familiar with her and your book is changing that it's a beautiful book and you really as a reporting fellow usually covering energy and the environment how did you come about her how did you find her
1: yeah well i i quite literally stumbled uh, upon patients because I think like most people, I had never heard of patients Gray, even though I'd worked in the world of food uh, and cooking for, for quite some some time uh, and, and had a, an interest in food writing. Uh, I, I, I heard about patients after she died in 2005 uh, in an obituary in a magazine called The Art of Eating, which is published here in Vermont. And the, the editor of the Art of Eating, a guy named Ed Bear. He was a great champion of patients' work uh, for many years, uh, had reviewed Honey from a Weed when it was published, uh, and had visited patients. in fact, a couple of times in the 1990s, and in his obituary described Honey from a Weed as one of the best books that will ever be written about food, uh, and, you know, I, I read that. I was in my <laughs> 20s, I suppose, and I thought that sounded a little bit over the top, but it, it certainly... Piqued my my interest, <laughs> and and then it turned out that my parents actually had a copy of Honey from a Weed, uh, so those two things happened in quick succession, and and there I was, sort of swept away by uh, Patience's prose, as I think many people are when they first encounter it, mm. and and from there, you know, uh, over over the course of of ten years, um, eventually. Uh, wrote this
0: book, so it found you rather than perhaps you finding it. You weren't really in search for it, even though interesting. You you are a contributing writer even for Gastronomica, so you you are absolutely engaged in the food world. And yet, as so many of us, you know, we do have our our female heroes in this food world, of course, with Ellis Waters and many others leading the charge, and yet Patience Gray, a British cookery and travel writer of the mid-20th century, born in 1917, completely breaking societal norms. Tell her, before we dive into your book itself, can you describe her persona of what you've, who you've come mm. to know?
1: Hmm. Well, she's a, a somewhat cryptic person. Uh, you know, she Her her books are intensely personal, but at the same time reveal very little about her her past or her life. Uh, And, you know, she is best known for Honey from a Weed, which is an account of the, you know, more than four decades that she and her partner, the Belgian sculptor Norman Moman, spend traveling around and then eventually living in the south of of Italy. They spend time in, in several remote Mediterranean villages. If you read Honey from a Weed, you get a very distinctive a sense of of the life that she lived, uh, but but that's only half the story. Of course, she you know she spent her childhood in England, uh, was one of three sisters, uh, lived during the war in a in a relatively uh, primitive cottage owned by her mother, which is where she first took an interest in in foraging and cooking, and then spent the 1950s in in London working as an artist and translator, uh, and, and journalist. So there were many many facets to. To her life, to her personality, she was an incredibly strong-willed person, uh, fiercely independent, and and I would say intellectually voracious and driven, uh, and and you know lived this truly remarkable and uh, adventurous life.
0: So, you studying her and uh, beyond, reading the books, trying to get everything you can from her. Would you consider her one of the most influential writers? in the culinary world at this point looking looking back at your research?
1: Yeah, influential is a, a tricky word and it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting because you know, I, I interviewed a lot of, of food writers and critics who absolutely adore patients and, and you know, like Ed Baer, sought her out uh, visited her you know, in this remote place in Puglia, it wasn't easy to get to people like Corby Cummer, Alice Waters, who you mentioned, uh, Nancy Harmon Jenkins, Harold McGee you know the list goes on. They 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 truly found something in her work. However, you know as as I write in the book, she remains relatively unknown beyond that small circle. So it's hard to kind of measure her influence. But there, there's no question that she's considered an incredibly important food writer. Uh, and I think that her influence, uh, you know, will will only grow. Uh, but at the same time, she certainly doesn't have the same kind of recognition that. Uh, M.F.K. Fisher and Elizabeth David, do uh, two food writers who she's sometimes compared with. So it's a it's a paradox, and and in in many ways, it's it's what animates uh, my own book.
0: Exactly, that's the kind of a little bit the allure, right? She was this who is this person that, that was so into it and so could so explicitly explain her experience, and yet remains a little bit hidden from us even th- even in her in her writing that's patience gray a life about food a new book from the author who's our guest today here on the show adam federman adam as a personal question what fascinated you about her what was it that made you say this is so amazing that i'm going to write a book about it
1: well at, at first i think it it was just the voice that came through in her own work i mean it really is singular uh, and her books are unusual, you know. You, it, it's 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 not often that you come across a cookbook that really I think stands out, especially today when when the market yes. is so uh, uh, you know flooded with with cookbooks and and, and new books. Uh, but but her her both aesthetically and just in the way she writes and 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 the subjects that that she uh, is so clearly interested in, uh, you know, everything about them stands apart. So so there was that before I really knew anything about her. But then. You know, once I started to get a sense of uh, the, the vast archive of, of letters that she had left behind and the sense of the life that she had lived and the many sort of unknowns that were there as part of her past, uh, that, then her, her character became that much more compelling. And I had the great fortune of, of working with her, her children, her, her son, Nicholas, and her daughter, Miranda, both of whom, you know, of course, they knew patients quite well. Uh, and also had a great interest in in learning more about her. You know, I, I had access to this remarkable treasure trove of of letters that patients left behind, uh, and really formed the you know the foundation of of my book and and my research.
0: In your research, um, it's it's fair to say that she had a wild life, uh, even by today's standards. Can you can you explain that? What what stories stick out for a woman born yeah. in 1917?
1: <laughs> Indeed, and you see the the shape of that adventurous life take form from really from an from an early an early age. As a young woman, she went off to, to study in London uh, at the age of thirteen. The place called Queen's Queen's College, which was an, an all-girls school, quite quite well known. Uh, Patience lived with um, with an aunt in London, and and she was quite precocious, and, and certainly seemed to thrive in that sort of intellectual milieu. Uh, she hitchhiked across uh, uh, across Eastern Europe as a young woman, uh, spent time in Romania with her sister. Uh, th- that was actually after she had gone to the London School of Economics in the mid to late 1930s. So, you know, she had a taste for adventure and, and seemed to, to end up in, in, you know, really kind of remarkable um, situations. That trip to R- Romania, of course, was, you know, n- 1938, uh, and then the... Rumblings of of war were were starting to to be felt, and yes. I, I think Patience and her sister were somewhat naive about what was happening um, in, in in the larger world, but certainly had a, a, an interest in, in exploring it. You know, you see this throughout the rest of Patience's life. You know, she loved to travel, and uh, you know, she spent much much, much of uh, of the second half of her life really pushing against England and and doing everything she could to kind of escape.
0: From it. Do you have examples for that? Like, what did she do? How did it change from kind of this younger life where she really explored to perhaps um, becoming a little bit more stationary, but changing the culture even in the small towns she lived in?
1: Even, even as a young woman, she she railed against the conventions of, of domestic life. Uh, yes. She was quite critical of of her own parents and and seemed to to try to put as much distance as she could between herself and uh, and sort of th- those conventions. She did, have, you know, the 1950s, she was still living in London. She was working as a journalist and, and of course, raising her, her children as a single mother. Uh, it, and it really wasn't until she, she met Norman in 1958 uh, that they seriously started to think about uh, leaving London and, 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 you know, setting out on this new life. Uh, and together, once they did that, they were quite critical of trappings of consumer society that they felt were becoming more and more oppressive in London at that time. And we're searching for a simpler kind of life. So in 1962, they they left, uh, and and, and uh, spent several months in Carrara, the uh, the marble town in, in northwest Tuscany, um, and and that was really the beginning of their their odyssey. And uh, you know they they returned to London on several occasions throughout the 1960s, and in 1970, found the farmhouse in Puglia, which is where they would eventually settle.
0: Patience Gray, Patience Jean Gray, October 1917 to March 2005, a British cookery and travel writer of the mid-20th century. The most popular books were um, a book about French cooking and, as you said, Honey from a Weed, I think published in 1986, an account really of the Mediterranean way of life. How do you see her work and passion Having influenced, and we talked about that in the beginning, whether it's influenced or kind of shaped, it's both our relationship to food, but also how she pushed against these societal norms and expanding the the role and the the space of women in society really through her work and cooking, because it's uh, historically it was more, or still maybe is more, a task that is being done by women, but even redefining. That how do you see her work translate now into society on so many levels? Hmm.
1: but she really did give voice to a way of life that that was disappearing uh, and she learned from women and 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 children who were so uh, sort of immersed in in the in in the life of of plants and uh the traditional methods of of using and preparing them so I think one of the the remarkable things about honey from a weed is that it has this almost anthropological uh, dimension to it, even though, of course, Patience was not an anthropologist. Uh, you know, she was documenting this this world that I think at that time, you know, you could still access, but but it was becoming harder and harder to do. And she was also part of this generation, I think, of food writers uh, who, who really transformed cookery writing into uh, something that was taken seriously as a form of literature, even an art form. And And, you know, I mentioned a couple of the other writers of that time, uh, M.F.K. Fisher and Elizabeth David. And and I I really do think that they played a pivotal role in in changing the way that certainly post-war England approached and and thought about food. So, you know, Patience's first book, which you you just mentioned, uh, *Plat du Jour, uh, which dealt with mostly French and and continental cuisine, was one of the best-selling cookbooks of the 1950s, uh, and one of the first, you know, mass-market paperbacks of its of its kind, so I think in a in a in a era when we're so besotted with with cookbooks and and writing on food, it's it's hard for us to um, or it's easy for us to to perhaps forget that at that that time uh, these these kinds of ideas and this kind of writing about food was was really not common.
0: Yeah, really more much more than a cookbook, uh, much more a a take or a lifestyle explanation, especially for a lifestyle that was, as you said, going against the direction of society, right, back to simple, uh, maybe more nature-integrated, more holistic way already back then uh, in the 40s or 50s and 60s, understanding food as, as a way of life. Remar- remarkable Absolutely. and maybe one of her first, the first of her kind really, uh, women or men nobody had seen it as a center to redefine our relationship to self. Is that an overstatement?
1: No, I don't think it is and I, I you know, Patience and Norman were increasingly influenced by uh, new ideas in ecology and, and uh, there was definitely a, a utopian streak to their to their desire to find the right place to live and work and, and I think Norman even perhaps more so than Patience was uh, was influenced by some of those thinkers. One of his good friends was a philosopher named Leopold Kour, who's famous for coining the the phrase "small is beautiful." So that sort of principle was was very close to them. And so writing about food and and you know these uh, these things were part of a, a a bigger idea for for patients and for for Norman. So I, I don't think it's too much to. <laughs> Uh, to, to describe, to, to characterize her her that way. And of course, I think Honey from a Weed has part of the, the power of the book is the fact that it it does touch on so many of those themes.
0: Nice. We're speaking with Adam Fetterman about his new book, Patience Gray, A Life About Food. Patience Gray, a British cookery and travel writer of the mid-20th century, uh, kind of forgotten within the modern way of cookbooks and travel writing or food writing. And yet, I would say highly influential and really trend setting to what has become the modern food movement. And uh, that includes local, organic and holistic uh, as well, unwilling to accept social standards and really pushing boundaries and gender roles all within her work and passion about food, cooking and eating. Um, Adam, do you have a example of her or your observation of her holistic way of seeing food. You're talking about, Mm. you know, the natural world, what she saw and learned and understood new coming from London, but really opening up nature, food and nature. It's almost nature writing in a way on behalf of food. But do you have an example of of where that comes out so beautifully?
1: Well, it's an interesting observation because I think patience is first sort of entree to the world of foraging was actually not the fact that you could, uh, you know, you could eat these mushrooms, but their sort of aesthetic appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she has a, an unpublished essay that I quote in the book where she describes first being kind of drawn into the the forest by these she calls them you know apparitions and describes the the different colors of uh, Amanita muscaria and, and the chanterelles and, and other mushrooms that. Uh, were so um, so rich in that that landscape around West Sussex, where she had lived during the war, and I think for patients that was always a crucial element of her interest in in, in food and uh, edible wild plants and and fungi was uh, her love of nature, and uh, you know she loved to draw. She frequently would just wander, uh, either in the in the forest or you know when they were living in the Mediterranean in the Macchia, the the Mediterranean scrubland, uh, and I think she she did view it in in this holistic way, even if you know she may not have used that that language. Um, and it was part of that uh, kind of discovery of of the, the the beauty of the natural world that I think always kept patients, You know,
0: yeah, fueled uh, her,
1: fueled her indeed. And and you know, up up until her late eighties, she was still identifying plants and mushrooms and, and spending time you
0: know, in the field. Beautiful. Patience Gray, A Life About Food. We want to dive into your direct book, uh, what people will find, and um, if if you are going on a book tour and how you are writing about her <laughs> writing. Um, in just a minute, we're taking a quick break. Again, our topic in this hour is Patience Gray, A Life About Food, the new book from Adam Fetterman, who's our guest today here on An Organic Conversation And I'm Helge Hellberg. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with so much more. Please stay tuned. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org and Frey Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Frey never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's freywine.com. That's F R E Y W I N E.com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. here to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour is a kind of forgotten British cookery and travel writer who was uh, still absolutely influential on creating the way we are now in relation to eating food and maybe even the natural world. Patience Jean Grey, uh, she was born in 1917 and then spent most of her life traveling and exploring both the kitchen as well as the natural world, as both are so connected, which is what we are promoting here, that understanding on an organic conversation. And the author of that book, Patience Gray, Life About Food, is our guest today. He's joining us today from Vermont. It's Adam Fetterman. Adam, can you describe what you are writing about in your book? It's not an easy task to write about a writer. And you've done that so well in your book, a Life About Food. Tell us how you how you structured. You just said before the break that you were able to quote a an unpublished essay. How did you approach this book, and and what will readers find?
1: So I should I should say uh, from the outset that I, I I didn't go into this project thinking that I would I would write a book. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was more, more than ten years ago now that I made my first trip to to Puglia to visit Patience's son, Nicholas Gray, and uh, and that's when I first had a chance to actually look through some of the letters and, and really kind of get a sense of, of what this archive amounted to, uh-huh. which is by way of saying that, I, you know, I didn't have some, some grand plan in terms of how I would structure the book, but when I did get to the point of, of being ready to write it, I, I really wanted to tell a story, and I knew that she wasn't someone that, most people uh, would have heard of. So I, I, I want—I I really wanted it to be accessible to, 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 to those people in particular. Uh, you know, I didn't want it to be a book for aficionados or, or those who were in the know about who Patience was. So I, I, I guess I, I really made an, an effort to, to tell, you know, to tell her story and, and to do it in a way that uh, was engaging and, and accessible. Uh, and having, having the letters was, was absolutely crucial because I was able to uh, reconstruct so much of, of, of her life and also to, uh, you know, in a way, tell it, I think, in her own words.
0: Do you have some stories that stick out to you um, in your book? Like what were you finding in your research that mm. was not being found in the books that she had written?
1: Yes, well, I would say at at every turn, you know, Just to take one example, the, the chapter on Plat du Jour, which is the book that she her first book, which she published in 1957, I, I went to the, the Penguin Books Archive in, at the University of Bristol uh, in England, and they had a, a large file folder there of correspondence uh, about that book, and it, it was truly uh, illuminating. I, I think th- this book is somewhat iconic, in part because of its, its wonderful cover illustration by David Gentleman, but you know, no one had had told the story of how it came to be and, and her her patient's relationship with her co-author, Primrose Boyd. Uh, I uncovered a 10-page um, analysis, critique of the book by Elizabeth David, who was working as an anonymous cookery kind of advisor for Penguin Books at that time. Uh, so there were, were things like that, that that turned up throughout the course of working on this book. Uh, you know, I even discovered that patients had been a subject of interest for uh, the British intelligence agencies during uh, you know during the early stages of the second World War and, mm-hmm. and got documents uh, related to that so in addition to the letters uh, the, the archives filled in a lot of uh, a lot of um, a lot of holes as well
0: yeah she was interesting enough as a person especially with her travels that wasn't she she considered possibly being a spy at one point
1: yes I you know she she had a uh, sort of moved in, in, uh, artistic and, and, uh, <laughs> radical circles. Her, her, uh, the father of her children, Thomas Gray, whose name she took, but never married, you know, had, had been involved uh, in some capacity in the, uh, the Spanish civil war and was a, a sort of self declared communist. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, of course, patients had traveled to Romania and elsewhere. So I, I think for, for, for some of those reasons, and also for, for a, a, friendship we, a, a friendship she had with a woman whose sister had actually been a, a Soviet spy, um, elicited the, the interest of, of the British intelligence services, um, and you know, patients had had a file which uh, I was not, in fact, able to obtain, but perhaps it's out there somewhere.
0: Super interesting. Um, we stand on the shoulders of the generations before us, and so many people. Uh, are forgotten even though we encounter them in uh, or, or meet their work every day in our lives and we don't even know about it if you had to summarize it what was patience message what is that today for us or for you
1: well i think it was really paying attention to these older ways of of being and relating to to the natural world and to um the environment, you know, she she learned from these peasant women who, uh, of course, had been doing what they were doing for, you know, for for decades, if not centuries, and and I think patients felt that that was so valuable and something that, you know, something that had almost entirely been lost in the industrial, uh, industrial West, and and I think patients in her work tried to reclaim. A little bit of that, and if there was one thing I think she wanted to impart, I think it was that message: that it it can be, it can be, it can be grasped. It's not completely, you know, destroyed. You know, because I, I think there is a message of of, of hope in her, uh, in Honey from a Weed. It's not doom and gloom, even though she says this is a way of life that's fast disappearing. She also says uh, many of the traditions have survived, and and they will continue to do so. Yeah, I think that was important to
0: her. It's fascinating to me that her message of of simplicity, in a way, is really in, in this society, even today, uh, maybe the most important one that we all need to hear, right?
1: Yeah, simplicity and also you know doing, making do with less, you know, whatever that means to, to people. I, I think that was something that she over over time came came to value more more and more. Uh, and it, it was a, a fundamental concept in in her approach to food and cooking as well, the idea of, of moving between scarcity and abundance. And, and it, well, I think what Patience felt gave uh, f- f- uh, eating and feasting uh, so much pleasure and joy was, was the understanding that, you know, it, it wasn't something that um, <clears throat> you always had. You, know, you, you knew that there would be periods of of scarcity and and uh, and fasting, in fact, so uh, that that idea was was central to her uh, her approach to food and cooking.
0: She was born in nineteen seventeen, and we are writing the year two thousand seventeen now. Uh, your book now out, you're rebirthing her. Was that coincidence or was that completely intentional? It
1: it wasn't completely intentional. It, w- it was largely coincidence. I tried for a couple of years to to pitch this book in in England. I, I thought I would have better luck in London, uh, given the fact that Patience is British and, and somewhat better known there, uh, and spent two years trying to find a publisher and, and had no luck. So I, I was really on the verge of, of moving on to something else when I got contacted by Chelsea Green here in Vermont, and they do a lot of books on, on food and the environment. They contacted me about something else entirely, uh, a, a story I had written on a different subject and, and asked if I had thought about turning that into a book. And I said, no, but I have this other project that I've been working on. Would you you know? And I described it to them and, and uh, asked if they were interested. And uh, Margot Baldwin, the publisher, uh, you know, she, she saw <clears throat> the importance of Patience's work. And, and, you know, a few weeks later, we were hashing out the contract. So the the fact that the book is out now. Really, is kind of just a a, <laughs> a coincidence, and then it's a, a good one.
0: <laughs> you being a travel writer yourself, or a food writer, including for Gastronomica and and uh, many other important publications. Uh, now having done that work for ten years, research really become very well befriended with uh, Patience Gray. How has your view of the world or of your work changed?
1: Mm. Well, when you have the time to, to work on a project like this, you know, you, you, at least for me, the the pleasure and satisfaction that comes from really understanding something and and having the the, the time to work on it. You, you know, as a freelance journalist, that's something that is in short supply, and you're you're constantly moving. Uh, from one project to the next, so being able to savor something and, and, and take the time to to do it justice, I think, you know, whether it's writing a book or or, or whatever it may be, uh, is just is so important. And you know, I think it's something certainly that patients embodied in her own life. Uh, and you know, she did things that uh, took tremendous uh, amount of time and labor. Teaching herself to make jewelry, you know producing her own books and, and things that she did because she believed in them, uh, you know, not, not because she felt she had to, or because she was doing it for, for someone else. And, and even honey from a weed in a way was a labor of love. She, she, it took her almost 15 years to find a publisher. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that's something that I think we tend to lose sight of you know, yeah. work on things because they, they mean something to you, not, not to someone else or, some other you know social
0: structure yeah and in this case you didn't just research a topic you you befriended a person right life or life or death uh, doesn't really matter you you've become really close to her i would think in 10 years of research maybe have a sense of you kind of know her at least better than most of us who are still alive and i always wonder if if you spend 10 years with a person, fictitious or real person, that is no longer around, and we have many authors on the show who are writing about um, other other people, what that relationship is like, and or do you miss her, or is she with you and her <laughs> message every day?
1: You sort of feel like they're with you, you know, and, <laughs> and I, of course, I never knew patients, so I don't, I don't have the... I'm not in that situation where, uh, where I, as, as some biographers are, you know, where they were either close to their subject or or had met their subject and then uh, are writing about them. But it's a it's a funny thing, you know, it it, it sort of becomes part of your subconscious. And uh, I, I also, of course, had the wonderful opportunity to meet, you know, patients' family, her, her children, her grandchildren, and, mm-hmm. and many of her friends. So you do you do get this sense that 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 person is still. Um, living, you know, in in, in other ways, and, and that's been a just a wonderful kind of by a byproduct of, of working on this
0: project. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, I always say we do manifest in the presence of the other, and you are clearly manifesting now after the ten years of research in the presence of patients Gray, who has passed on, and still yet she is so alive. And vice versa. She's manifesting in you through your book. A uh, hundred years later, exactly um, of her birth, your book is born. That's Adam Federman, the author of a new book about patience. Jean Gray, the British cookery and travel writer who pushed all norms and against all directions of society in her lifetime to allow our current relationship to food and cooking, uh, to be inspired again by nature, by simplicity, by the understanding of feast and famine. Thank you so much for making time, Adam. Really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for your work. It's an important reminder of the shoulders of the people that we have long forgotten, that we stand on and um, can be grateful for. And um, best of luck in your book tour and with this book, and we'll have you back soon.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Pleasure. pleasure. Take
0: good care. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And that is Patience Gray, A Life About Food. That's the title of the book. Chelsea Green, the publisher. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Hellberg. And we're staying with the topic of food. Of course, the update from the Produce Doc our consumer segment. We are in the holiday season. And that means lots of food, how to get the best deal, how to buy, when to buy, how to store it and perhaps even what is best right now and what to do with it. All that from the Produce Doc with Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce, the voice of the San Francisco Produce Doc and Mr. Organic. Here's What's in Season. And with us now, as every week, is Earl's Organic Produce, in this case, not in form of Earl Herrick, the founder and owner of Earl's Organic Produce, but Rodrigo, one of his star buyers. Rodrigo, do we have you with us? Yes. Hi, Helga. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Wow. Thanks for making time, because I know this is an incredibly busy time. We are between the holidays, Thanksgiving just behind us, and uh, Christmas coming up in just a few short weeks 3 4 weeks to go are you are you feeling the impact of of organic demand
2: Absolutely. And let me tell you that um, the holidays uh, between Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's (laughs) is the Super Bowl of produce for us. (laughs) That's
0: great. Yes, uh, I can imagine. I mean, we just talked with Earl a couple of weeks back about every holiday is kind of food-centric, but there's no more food-centricity than for Thanksgiving and and for, for Christmas, really, Uh, while people may barbecue for 4th of July. These are holidays to celebrate food and the harvest, right? That's where they came from. And so um, really an important tradition and, of course, a wonderful time for us who are in the food business to celebrate and be grateful for the work that we've done and for the produce that is being provided by our farmers. But I can only imagine what you guys are going through. Uh, What's your item of the week? What are you focused on right now?
2: Right now, I'm focusing on apples, um, nice. We are seeing. Uh, I would say we're pretty much at the peak of production out of Washington, which is the main growing region for organic apples uh, in the United States.
0: Wow. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And and how is that year? I know we had some early rains uh, already in October here in California, which is. Announcing another wet winter, the second in a row after seven years of drought. So that's wonderful, but I know some of the produce, at least here on the west coast, has been impacted. Of course, vegetables, but also satsuma mandarins mm-hmm. and citrus. How are how are apples affected? How is the production right now? And with that, how are prices?
2: Yeah. So we what we have seen this year in this particular season in and uh, from Washington is uh, during October. Temperatures were warmer than normal. Uh So uh, the problem when we have warmer than expected temperatures uh, uh, right before harvest is the the color. The color might be an issue. Um, The early varieties of apples were mostly affected by that. Um, Anything that needs to be harvested in September or early October uh It was really, really warm there um, when I say warm you know eighty or ninety degrees Fahrenheit mm. um and the nights weren't cool enough, so please keep in mind that is the cold what brings the color up how oh, really
0: fruit. how how does that work do you know
2: well basically the the fruit you know goes through through the process of ripening, and uh, if it's cold enough like it usually is in in autumn in Washington. Uh, the the tree enters in dormancy, the growth of the fruit slows, and that continues the the process of ripening. In this case, we see the the ripening of the fruit on the outside, bringing the color up because of the cold, but without the fruit growing too much. Mm. If it's too warm, the fruit is going to be ready, it's going to reach maturity faster because you know the 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 the, the tree keeps pumping nutrients into the fruit and the fruit will be ripe sooner, too soon sometimes, before it gets any color. So as a farmer, you have uh, to make the decision. Do you harvest when the fruit is is ready or you wait until the fruit gets more color? But sometimes you might be harvesting something that is past its time. And that is a very, very hard decision because uh, farmers get more money for the more color fruit. Uh, Imagine the Fujis. Or, or the galas, you know a, a fuji that, that doesn't have any color even though it might be very sweet it just uh, doesn't have the same market appeal than uh, uh, customers are used to uh, with a full color uh, fuji apple
0: yeah luckily in the organic movement we have come away a little bit at least from appearance to flavor and quality uh, but you're saying of course if if somebody could pick a beautifully red, a really perky apple over a pale one by nature because we're attracted to beauty, we would think and associate the richer color with better flavor. But what does that mean to the consumer? Don't be deterred Mm -hmm. by a maybe less shiny or or more pale apple. The flavor is still outstanding. Try it in the store and and go with that.
2: Absolutely. My advice would be, first of all, in those early varieties, if you find uh, that all the galas have, uh, you know, less color than you used to it, just try it. The flavor will be there regardless of the color. And then on the later varieties, like Pink Ladies, on some of the newer varieties that are coming to market, uh, since those were harvested later on, they were able to get the cool, the, the cold that they needed. And um, and it's a very clear difference between early varieties and the later varieties and the later ones having much better color, and we're seeing that right now. And uh, prices... I say, yeah, go on. Go ahead. Um, it's, uh, I, I would say that by now, all the apples are what is expected to be back to normal color. Uh-huh. This, uh, this low color was mostly early in the season. Uh, you might eventually still see a Gala. Gala is one of the earliest uh, apples to be harvested. But every other variety is... Uh, is really looking very good. And one more thing, Helga, okay, we are seeing this year uh, a, big, a, a much bigger percentage of the entire crop being organic. So although Washington State is, a, is, is, a, uh, is the main growing region uh, and the production is, is gigantic, we're talking about more than 200 million cases of apples. Um, the organic percentage is going for the first time this year above 10%. And we're looking at next year maybe being even at 12%. So that's very good news because um, organic customers will have access to a much bigger uh, volume of organic apples and also newer varieties that are coming along.
0: Yes, and I mean from pollination to the bee issue that we have with pesticides it's uh, and apples being on the you know, dirty dozen list of crops. So that's wonderful news, actually. Thank you for that update on the on the volume of production now being organic. It has so many ecological consequences as well, uh, or positive ripple effects, I should say. Prices are stable, are good? Do we have good production?
2: We, we have. We, I would say that prices, for the most part, are lower than last year, uh, in part to the bigger volume. Um, The size of the fruit might be uh, one size smaller uh, than last year. We're seeing a little bit of that in some varieties. But overall, the good news that I want to share with everybody is that we have a wonderful crop out of Washington. Uh, The prices are lower than last year. And as more and more volume is converted from conventional organic, that trend will continue. And uh, I'm sure that customers are seeing... The uh, apples, like the wonderful Honeycrisp, that now is available uh, during much the the season. The Honeycrisp is is much uh, larger now. It's we can uh, uh, enjoy them for many more weeks, and the prices are much more uh, accessible. So those are some of the benefits. Uh,
0: What is just to finish off? What is your Favorite new variety? Like, what have you seen um, this year or in the last couple of years of an apple that was came, just came to market, uh, you know, a hybrid across the um, organically grown that you thought, wow, this is really bringing it all together?
2: One of my favorite apples that I've seen recently, you know, and uh, the last few years, it's, uh, it's, it's a jazz apple. Uh-huh. I absolutely <laughs> yeah, like I the jazz. And uh, what I like about it, it has a, a high uh, complexity. Complex uh, flavor. It has high sugar and high acidity, making it very complex. It has uh, big cells with thick walls, full of juice, so it uh, is it's, it's very crunchy. Uh, in uh, the crisp crispiness of these apples is, is fantastic. In uh, it's beautiful. And um, it has a, uh, a, a, it's a short season, but it's grown in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. So it has two seasons. Uh, really, really one of my favorite ones. And it's a, you know it's a it's a cross between a royal gala and a brayburn, um, but it's uh, it's growing really well. Although it was developed in New Zealand. It, the Jazz apple it feels very comfortable growing in Washington. Nice. So that's, uh, that's one of my favorite newer newest apples that we've had uh, in the last few years.
0: Cool. Jazz. Jazz Apples. Check it out if you find it at your local uh, natural food store. Uh, thank you, Rodrigo. This is wonderful. And Apples, I'm from Germany. That's what I grew up with. Um, right uh, north of Hamburg is one of the largest apple-growing regions in Europe, actually and um, it's all integrated pest management and right along your story that now past 10% of all apples from Washington are organic. uh, Apples, it's where it's at. Check out the jazz of all the apples, and um, thank you so much for all your work year-round and especially right now. Happy holidays to you, and we'll have you back soon.
2: Thank you so much, (laughs) Helga.
0: Thank you, Rodrigo. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. From food writing and food awareness to eating and organic produce. It's all so interconnected. This is An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Thank you for being a listener to this show and podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week, and we'll hope to have you back as well. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. And that was this week's edition of an organic conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An organic conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at EqualExchange.coop And Utterly Offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Adelie, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, adelie.co. Also, Earls Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef? Have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earls Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives family owned and operated since 1980 fry vineyards mendocino county award-winning wines for more information frywine.com that's f-r-e-y w-i-n-e dot lastly thank you as well to bowman college focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years bowman college offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at Conversation, and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.